whenever somebody comes to a podium to speak as a public speaker, I'm always curious to know how they're going to start. You know, if you've ever taken a public speaking class, which I haven't, obviously, they always teach you the first kind of things you want to do is build a rapport with your audience so they'll go with you. And you can take them with you. <clears throat> and so they go to the podium and they try to say something funny or somehow build this rapport. Do you might see the special on PBS on Mark Twain that ran a little while back? It's really interesting. Mark Twain gave a number of lectures later in his life. And people, thousands, would come to hear him speak. And he had this ability to start the story and get to the point, and then he just, in his Missourian drawl, he just sort of stopped. Just wait for it, hang in there, and then he'd give the punchline, and people would just roar. They just loved it. He had that ability in timing. So one day, he walked to the podium. There's 15,000 people out there. And he just stood there, looking around. He didn't say a word. <laughs> pretty soon, there was a snicker, and then another snicker. And pretty soon, the whole place was laughing, and he hadn't done anything at all. <laughs> you know, well, so I thought I'd start that way today. <laughs> But the difference is, if I were going to go to that podium today and give you a lecture on something I know about, like spotted owls, I'd be imparting to you some knowledge that I would have that most of you probably don't have. But the difference is, when we go to that podium here, we're not talking about the things of this world. We're talking about things of God. We're not talking about imparting knowledge to the mind we're talking about connecting at the heart and with our spirits, with the eternal God. And that makes all the difference in the world, I think. So join me in prayer as we start, and let's see what the Lord has for us today. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege we have of coming and worshiping together. Thank you to Phil and his uh, team for the beautiful music they brought us that lifts our spirits and our hearts and our minds towards you. The eternal God, the author of our salvation, the creator of everything that we see before us, everything that has been, everything that will be, the creator of our very own hearts and souls, that you create each one of us uniquely. Father, thank you that you have provided through our Savior, Jesus Christ, a salvation for our souls when we so do not deserve it. And yet we can put our confidence in you, knowing when this life is through, our eternal life is just begun. Just begun. So, Father, as we open your holy word today, teach us. Bring us closer to you. Instruct us. And may your name be glorified and praised. Amen. We continue this morning in 1 John, our second in this series. And uh, Bill, thank you for reading. I hope you have your Bibles turned to 1 John chapter 2, because that's primarily where we'll be today. Um, to get there, some of you weren't with us last week, and it doesn't hurt to recap just briefly some things. 
So let me get this little thing on. If you remember, if you were here with us last week, we started with this picture of looking at us and the uniqueness of who we are. And we talked a little bit about that. And then we are each uniquely created. We have our own personalities and our own desires. And we live down through the ages. And you know, there's never been anybody created quite like you. Never been another Paul or Shayla or Jim or you're unique. But we also notice that when God looks at us like this, this is what he sees if we do not know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. He sees death and destruction. And it is into that darkness that he sent the Savior to redeem us. And we needed to go to that spot to start because that's where John starts as he writes this epistle or this letter to the church that one of the evidences of our salvation is we recognize our condition as God sees us, that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. I've had the experience, I'm sure a lot of you have, of really befriending somebody and trying to share with them the love that God has for them, their need of a personal Savior, and they're just, they don't get it. They simply are dead in their trespasses and sins. And they're, they're blinded to that truth. We, last week, we looked, and this one is just from Galatians, we also looked at um, Exodus. And um, the scripture has all kinds of examples in it of our trespasses and our sins. And without going through all these, we just briefly looked down. But, you know, you can go to Scripture and, and, and look. And the main point is this, that if God's Spirit's working within your heart, part of the evidence that he is working in your heart is a conviction that there's sin in your life. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If that recognition is not there, then probably you and God are not communicating. He is not working in your heart. We focused on murder. Of the Ten Commandments, it does not say you shall not kill, it says you shall not murder. And there are few, and probably none here, that have physically killed somebody, but that's not what it's talking about. You know, Jesus makes it very clear, and John says, in his gospel at 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life. And then in Matthew, we read, and I say that everyone who is angry with his brother, this is our Savior talking here, shall be guilty before the court. And so we have a recognition here from the Lord how are you interacting with your brother or your neighbor, people around you? The wonderful thing about God is he loves us all equally. And he's desiring to build a Christ-likeness in our hearts that we would love one another. And not just the brethren, but our neighbors as ourselves. So that evidence there is how, do we, how are we interfacing with this concept of reacting toward one another when 
others don't see the world quite like we are. And most of us are married, and most of us would have to agree that our spouse just doesn't see the world quite like we do all the time. With the possible exception of Joy and I, <clears throat> it's sort of the iron sharpening iron, isn't it? You know. But you think about that, you know, people get divorced for irreconcilable differences, and I always share with young couples irreconcilable differences. She's a girl and you're a guy, that's an irreconcilable difference. And you, because of your gender, are never going to approach the same issue the same way, and that is not an irreconcilable difference, although it is, that's a strength. Because she looks at the podium from this side, and he looks at this side, and between the two, rather than arguing about it, you get a fuller picture of what's going on. We looked at Proverbs 6, and 9, 6 chapter 6, beginning with 16. <clears throat> and I'm just going to read it to you. You don't need to stay, just stay in 1 John. But these are six things, the scripture says, which the Lord hates. Yes, seven which are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that's pride, okay? A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utter lies, and the last one is one who brings strife among the brethren. We went there last week because that John is really concerned we understand the principle that if murder is amongst us, it's death. It's not of God. Okay? And so the recognition and the acknowledgement of personal sin, 1 John 5, 1 through 10, and the confession that that brings holiness, cleansing, 1 John 1, 8 through 22, that we need to understand and we need to look and acknowledge before God how we treat one another. We started there because of where we go today. And, well, let me say this first. So this, the start of real life, and we had this slide last week, is the concept that when we accept Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, he doesn't remake us. He makes all things new. He doesn't reshape the dead. He brings new life up from the roots that are rooted in him. And so that, when we first come to Christ, we, like this little oak tree, are just fledgling. We don't know much, but we're new, see. And it starts with a recognition that we were dead, as the stump shows, in our trespasses and sin. Evidence number two is where we go today. As Bill read from chapter 2, 1 through 11, is keeping his commandments. So let's get, let me get back over to 1 John. And we'll take a look at that. <clears throat> 1 John has a focus on love of the brethren at the end. So I want to go there in, in, in of this passage that Bill read. It says, if you'll note with me, verses 9 through 11. It says, the one that, he's, that says, pardon me, the one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother 
is in the darkness until now. And that we could substitute their hates for murder. Okay, the one who's acting toward his brother with hatred is in darkness. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling into him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and he does not know where he's going because his eyes are darkness and he has blinded. That's how significant it is if we, if we do not have a love for one another. Now, I start there for this passage because earlier, going back up to verse 3, he says, John does to us, by this we know we have come to know him. In other words, we have salvation and we are walking with God. This is how you're going to know. This is your evidence that you have eternal life. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, which commandments? All of them, okay? Well, is that possible to do? Well, what John is doing, he's narrowing down the focus to look at that last part of loving one another. Because if we can love one another, that is the fulfillment of the law because all those other things, enmity, strife, frictions, hatred, all that melts away. Verse five, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. And by this, we know we are in him. The one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner that Christ walked. What's going to happen is that as we mature in Christ, the old self starts to fall away and all things become new and our lives are more and more and more conformed to how Christ would handle something. What would happen there? Verse 7. Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have heard from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I'm writing you a new commandment, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. That's talking about a development in a Christ-likeness. Because if we walk in a manner pleasing to him, we are becoming more like him. And then he goes into that last passage right there that we already touched on. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is a liar. He's not there. So, let's look at some... Examples. All right. First point I think the scripture makes to us really clearly is that love is not a Valentine's feel good, have an emotional reaction to things. Love is an action. First Corinthians 13. And I've just pulled out what it is and what it isn't for us. Okay. Love is patient, kind, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, Love never fails. Everybody got that down pat in their life? You can do that every day, right? That's what true love is all about. And we're going to look at some examples of that here. And let's start with this one. I really like this little picture. <clears throat> but 
what it says in 4.9, and this is when, when a young couple getting married or counseling or sharing with me they want to get married, and they'll say, Steve, what is this, what are some of the reasons you enjoy have been married as long as you have? You, you know, how did you do that? This is one of the things I share with them is this verse right here. Not that we, Joy and I, ever do this all the time perfectly, but it's a foundational principle of our relationship. And it's that no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will be give grace to those who hear. Now, let's look up what unwholesome means. We may think we know, but it's, it's nothing that's detrimental or unwholesomeness. A, an unwholesome word is a word that is detrimental to the moral and mental well-being of someone who hears it. The mental and moral well-being, it's detrimental to that. In other words, it tears them down instead of lifting them up. So the Lord is saying, remove that from your vocabulary. Don't tear people down with what you say. But only such a word is good for edification. Now edification, if you educators, if you look that up, it is instruction of a, for a person's moral and intellectual good. Moral and intellectual good. So the two are antithesis of one another. The one is saying, don't say anything that's going to tear somebody down, but rather share something that is going to uplift them. Okay? Why does the church have the reputation for killing its wounded? And we do. It's because we don't do this. We think we got it figured out, and you need to hear it, and I'm going to tell you and we kill one another. We murder one another. And what Paul's saying to us, don't let that happen. Pay attention to this. So as you look at this picture of these two men, the one on your right, of course it'd be my right too, the one on the right is sharing something. If you zoom in real close and listen intently, this is what he's sharing. Now think about it. That fits the perfect definition of what we were just talking about. He's addressing him very courteously, and he's saying, um, I'm giving you some edification. That's for the need of the moment. Okay? And it's a good word. So pay attention. <laughs> and we can do those kind of things for one another. I just like that picture. Oh, yeah, it's a neat picture. Here's another one. Another one that is so important. Speak the truth in love. And then a follow-up, and, and that is from Ephesians 4, Paul reminding us of something Jesus said in Matthew 5, 37. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Whatever more than this is from the evil one. Now, that sounds really simple on the, on the top. And I want to be real honest with everybody here. I think that little boy 
there. If we men were really honest, we would admit to all you that within each strong man in this room, there's a little boy just like that, deep down inside. And somebody that we respect can say something to us in a kind word and build us up, or they can also say something to that little boy and destroy him, okay? That mom right there is building into her son something good and wonderful and positive. She's down there, she's looking into his eyes, and she's speaking the truth in love. And she has a lot of opportunity not to do it. We've all, we've probably all experienced the other in our own lives where people have said unkind and disrespectful things that trigger things in our lives, woundedness that we've experienced when we were younger and brought it up back to the surface. If we could listen to that little mom, she would be saying something my mom said to me. Although my mom wasn't blonde, she was a brunette. But my mom would say to me, "Hun, regardless of what others say, I know you can do it. I was not a good student in school. I got a lot of ridicule from a lot of people because I was not a good student in school. Imprinted on my deep, down consciousness is this woundedness of you're a failure. And when people say those kind of things to me now, I hear my mom in my heart say, no, you're not. Because, and I want you to hear that, because it's not from my mom to each one of you, it's from the Lord. And what he's saying to us is you're not a failure. And you can tell it still hurts. You're not a failure. I created you uniquely. You might not make all the test scores of somebody else or be the most beautiful or the most handsome or the most talented. You are not a failure. And you can do it. I can do, what does the verse say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How does a young man that got criticism when he was young from all kinds of arenas except his mom stand up here before you and proclaim God's truth? It's because God makes everything new. And he can do all things through us. Because he's the one that gives us the strength. Not in our own. This is why this is not a, a lecture about spotted owls. This is God's truth that he's sharing with us this morning. That you're not a failure. I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. So don't listen to the critics. Don't listen to them. Okay? Listen to him. Listen to him. He's got your back. All right. Here's another one. Laying aside falsehood, speak the truth each one of you, for we are members of one another. Now, you don't have to replow the field 15 times doing that. You just gently come alongside and you speak the truth. Don't speak one thing one time and another thing another time. So when the person's hearing this is going, what, 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 
Where are they coming from? And it's not my truth or your truth. Speak his truth in love. Because your truth and my truth may not be his truth. Because we are influenced by our sinful nature, our upbringing, the way we think things ought to be done. We've got all these things that impact our lives and the way we think. We need to run all that through the filter of God's word and see if it really is truth or not. We all grow up with family traditions and the way to do things. All of us do that. It's our, it, we can't help it. But the way Warren's family does something, the way the Kearns family does something, or the Jones family does something, or anybody else in here, it can be different. It doesn't make it right or wrong. But right and wrong is in the litmus test of God's ultimate truth. So when we're going to somebody, laying aside all that personal stuff and speak his truth. And then you're given a word that edifies and is needed at the moment. And it's not a personal view, it's his view. See the difference? That's what he's called us to do. Be ambassadors for Christ. Speak his words, not our own words. Now, here's another one. Be quick to hear and slow to speak and slow to anger from James. Boy, that's an easy one to do, isn't it? I mean, we in American culture, somebody's sharing something with us, and they get about three-quarters of the way through, and we jump in with our view of maybe what they were talking to us about or something totally irrelevant and different. Before they quit speaking, we're already formulating in our minds what we're going to say, either in our own defense, and some of you are laughing, or to make sure we get our point in that counteracts or supersedes their point. And you know, you think about that and what it is, it's all about me, because I know so much more than you do about what we're talking about here. Now, <clears throat> Being a good husband, sometimes, I have watched Sense and Sensibilities, Pride and Prejudice, yep, you're laughing. She's watched Band of Brothers with me, bless her heart. Okay. But you know, one of the interesting things in those dialogues, in those chick flicks things, is when, and they're trying to emulate conversations in the elite back in the 1700s. Somebody will say something, and then there'll be a pause, and then somebody will respond to that. There's very, very, very little talking over one another. Very little. But go out in our culture today, and what do we have? We're talking over one another all the time. Instead of be quick to hear and slow to speak. Listen to them. And this is a great picture. That gal is practicing active listening, and some of us have read about that kind of stuff. You know, you, you listen to somebody and you make sure you're understanding, you repeat back to them, maybe what, this is what I heard you say, kind of thing. And she is not jumping in with giving her two cents on the subject. 
this is what the Lord has called us to do. Quick to hear, slow to speak. Think about your most personal relationships you have. You know? And recognizing you gals need to give a, a thousand words when three will do, but still, we, we guys need to listen, to understand. Conversely, when we guys say three words, you gals need to listen to that and understand. Because we talk differently. We really talk differently. We're different genders, and God made us that way. But be quick to hear and slow to speak, because that shows respect, and it shows love. And it, if you don't do that, in a way, you're murdering the one who's speaking to you, because you're basically saying to them, I don't respect you enough to hear you out. See? So we can kill one another just by not practicing this very simple thing. This is Philippians 2. Philippians 2 um, is another one of those verses that I try to share, try to practice, but certainly try to share with a young couple. Because this is a Christ-likeness. Let me read it to you, or turn there if you'd like to. It's, um, we're going to pick it up in uh, Philippians 2.3. And this is what our Lord through Paul says to us. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with the humility of mind, let each of you, now note what he says, regard one another as more important than himself. Let me read again. Do nothing from selfishness, but then he goes down, regard one another as more important than yourself. This is what our Savior did. He regarded us as more important than his own life and went to the cross for us. I was more important to him than he was to himself. Verse 4 says, Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. When we're get out of ourselves enough to look out for the interest of others, that is loving one another. That is the action. And it's the antithesis of murdering one another and not loving one another. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bond slave. It says servant, but the word is better translated a slave. Took him on the form of a bond slave, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Have this attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. It's a great picture. Probably the man went down the ice, and it's interesting, if you look to the bottom right in that picture, there looks like there's a, um, a Burger King sandwich container or something like that. 
And the inference is that it's the homeless man that has gotten up to help the other man that has fallen. And then you have another man approaching that you really can't see to help also. It's the Good Samaritan. When all the religious people pass the fellow that had been beaten and robbed, all the do-gooders pass. And it's the no-good Samaritan that stops, binds up his wounds, and then takes him to refuge and pays to have him cared for. Have this attitude in you. And this is why we go to this. For the, this is coming from Galatians 5.14 and the references back to the law in Leviticus 19.18. For the whole law is filled in one word, in one statement. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's what we're called to do. And that's why when John lists that, what Bill read for us this morning, he lists that in there about um, fulfilling the law. If you keep the law, if you keep his commandments, you know you have eternal life. It all boils down to this right here. The whole law is fulfilled in you shall love your neighbor as yourself, sacrificially, because that is what Jesus did. And we can't do that, family. We can't do that in our own strength. That's why this is not a lecture about how to live a godly life. This is a principle that God's spirit is supernaturally remaking you from the inside out if you begin to experience the desire to live this way. Now, there are a lot of people that do a lot of good work in helping others. But what God is talking about is they don't do it. it. It's not that we do it because of what we get out of it. It's that we do it sacrificially out of a heart that wants to care for others. Not for a paycheck, not for an attaboy. Simply, it's, a, it's, a, it's God's spirit manifesting itself, himself, through us. So the first evidence of our salvation is this. Very first one is a recognition of sin, that we must be born again into a new life. The second recognition is that as we love others, God's spirit starts to manifest itself through our lives. The old starts to pass away. The death is falling away. The death of sin, the results of sin is falling away, and new life is budding out all around us, all through us. And that's your evidence that you have eternal life. These things I have written to you that you may know you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Um, this wonderful little book that you, that John wrote through your inspiration, that we, as we approach our final hours here in this life, we don't have to worry and we don't have to doubt if we see these things of you working in our lives. Thank you. Uh, you love us. 
We just ask your blessing on us as we go out to serve you this week and that um, you'd give us opportunities to live for you um, and that others may see you through our lives and would not see us individually but see you. We love you. Thank you for loving us. Amen.